Hi, good evening, and welcome to the fifth in our series on big ideas the world or continue to change the world. This is a series that we've been doing in partnership with Keystone Positive Change Investment Trust, and it's been fantastic. And I'm incredibly excited about tonight's big idea, which is going to be about plastic. And the thing about plastic is that it was years ago, and now as I sit here and as you will see behind me, I'm covered in plastic. I've got plastic in everything. And the person we're going to talk to about plastic is also something that is of huge pleasure to me. Elizabeth Colbert is a New Yorker writer. She's the author of two extraordinary books, The Sixth Extinction, sorry, it's hard to say, a book called Under a White Sky. Um, particularly the latter book looks at things that had unintended consequences um, that people set off with really good intentions about trying to do something, as if any of you have read this book or not read this book, which I've super recommend, set off with something that initially seemed like quite a bright idea of our general control of the of the environment, but then had a terrible backhanded slap and has landed us all in a big problem. And I would say that plastic is probably one of the tops of those kind of inventions. And we're going to talk about how it got invented, uh, what a mess it's making, and then look at some of the ways we might get including some of the stuff that Elizabeth has written about in Under a White Sky to do with mechanical ways of maybe getting rid of plastic, but also getting rid of carbon. Um, details in the chat about both Elizabeth's books. She's a staff writer on The New Yorker, I think, staff, and she writes completely brilliant pieces. And in this session about plastic is based on a fantastically long, wonderful piece that she recently wrote, which caught our eye. And I'm thrilled that she's joining us here from Massachusetts. So it, while it's good evening from me, it's good afternoon from Elizabeth. Elizabeth, welcome to 5 by 15. I'm thrilled that you're here again. And thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you across across the, across the pond. Good. Um, so plastic, I mean, the thing is, where did it begin? What what What's the origin of it? And how did it creep up on us like this? Well, it's it's actually interesting. There's there's a, a British story and an American origin story. And I um confess that when I wrote about plastic, I, I I offered only the American story. And the American story, which is uh I would have to say the more entertaining of the two stories, it um involves a uh, prize that was offered in in the middle of the Civil War, the US Civil War, and um it was a guy who was a, sort of the billiards king of the 1860s. And at that point, billiard balls were made from ivory. And elephant tusks were becoming very dear already in the 1860s. And so this guy got the idea that he would sponsor a contest to come up with a replacement for ivory to make billiard balls. And two brothers from Albany, New York, uh, got to tinkering, and they came up with this substance that uh, involved, you know, camphor basically, and mixing all sorts of gooey things together. And they came up with what they called celluloid, and this was the first commercially successful plastic. There had been a um, a British scientist named Parks who had very similar invention a few years earlier, but it had never really taken off. And this one really took off. They formed a company and they made 
not just billiard balls, but they made everything, combs and false teeth uh, and knickknacks and just across the board. And they advertised, uh, you know, interestingly and perhaps paradoxically, as we'll discuss later, as a way to save these animals, animals like elephants and tortoises. Tortoise shell was being used for all sorts of jewelry and combs. Uh, tortoises, coral, coral was also being used very frequently in coral that's now so, so rare. Um, and they were going to save these creatures by creating these same items instead out of out of plastic, although it was not yet called plastic. That's that's so interesting. I mean, that fits fits so well into um, the sorts of things that you where you start out with a good mission to, as you say, save the coral. Um, but when did plastic? Um, so it start it starts out obviously with with things that are kind of nice and, and stuff like that. So when does it start to tip into the problem that we have today with it? Well, I. Like a great many of these of these issues and uh, problems that we have now, it's it's really becomes a post-war phenomenon. I mean, plastics really take off. A lot of plastics are used, and I don't want to say invented, but have strategic during mm -hmm. World War II, um, and then the consumer use of plastic really takes off after World War II. Um, and really even, and, you know, those of us who are old enough to remember would say really, really doesn't take off until maybe the 1980s or things like, you know, plastic shopping bags, which have become sort of the scourge uh, of the planet in a lot of ways. So it's a relatively new phenomenon. You can, you know, certainly go online and look at plastic production over time and see that kind of, you know, ski slope uh, well, I guess closed it down, but that that sort of exponentially rising curve. And we can't also forget that so much of plastic, say the whole of the health service, it depends on plastic. I mean, there is good plastic and then there's bad plastic. Well, I mean, that's a really interesting issue. And, you know, one man's good is another man's bad. Um, I'm not sure that things divide quite so neatly, but certainly our healthcare system now is completely, you know, reliant on sterile, single-use, uh, you know, gloves and, and, and masks and all, all sorts of um, materials that are, you know, that are only used once. Now, whether... Um, all of those are needed. I suspect even in our healthcare system, there's a lot of things that um, probably it's just more convenient to make them as opposed to actually medically necessary. You know, but certainly we are not getting rid of plastic in many settings um, or, or, you know, um, but the vast majority of plastic we use, you know, is not being used in healthcare settings. That's for sure. <laughs> um, like single-use plastic on food in a way the plastic or the ability of the plastic made the industry happen didn't it yes i'm sure you know i'm not i really don't want to claim to be sort of an expert on you know food packaging but certainly a lot of the things that we now take for granted you know of single servings and the way that we we consume when you know when you go to the grocery store 
if you were to try to do a shopping uh, trip without plastic, you would be limited. You probably would, or you'd be able to buy any, maybe there are some things that are still packaged in cardboard, but even those things may have a plastic liner. It would be very difficult for you to buy any kind of packaged food at this point, I think that doesn't have some plastic or plastic coating uh, involved. Yes, and I think it's a very easy one for the industry to defend because I, I've argued against plastic, everyone has, and they say, well, it makes the food last longer. So there is this very complicated situation around things like plastic and poverty and food and food protection, as there is about this convenience. Yes, I think that a very, you know, you can make a very powerful argument that in many of the uses of plastic and, you know, that the alternative is, I don't want to say worse, but potentially just as bad. Yes, if you're yeah. going to get, for example, um, food spoilage uh, without plastic packaging, then you are weighing things that are hard to you know, they're not quite commensurate. I'm not sure what met metric you would use, but certainly um, you would say there are there are heavy costs to that. So in your um you come up with some pretty extraordinary statistics. I mean, like how much plastic is there in the world? Oh, wow. Just, uh, I can't remember. Well, uh, one statistic that I will offer, which I don't even think was in the piece, is that, you know, there's now more, more plastic in the world. I, I, you know, then there are living creatures. The weight of the biosphere and the weight of the plastics that we've created are, uh, I, I can't remember the exact statistics, but, you know, roughly roughly analogous. So that's, that's a pretty stunning uh, figure. And every year, you know, billions of pounds of plastic are created. And where's the plastic? Well, um, it's ending up everywhere. <laughs> Um, you know, a lot of it gets landfilled. Um, that's if it's disposed of, you know, properly. Um, and the rest floats around. What's happening is plastics are also being used in the developing world. Um, it, that's a huge, you know, issue. Um, and ending up blowing into you know rivers that's where you get a lot of this plastic being discharged into the oceans it ends up in rivers and then it ends up in the ocean so uh, most of our listeners tonight have heard about the great you know pacific garbage patch which is this huge stretch of the pacific uh the sort of central pacific where um there are you know people imagine it as sort of a plastic soup it isn't really that a lot of Plastic are too small to see, but if you just, you know, were to dip a bucket in it and analyze it, you'd find, you know, these gazillions of little shards of plastic. Um, and that's a result of all this plastic, you know, as I say, just washing into the oceans. But somehow in the Pacific garbage patch, together, yes, in some weird well, way. It, it doesn't exactly hold together. It's just as a result of these ocean currents it doesn't leave, it doesn't spread out. So it's sort of being concentrated in a way, yeah. So the, the, the big, well, there are many scares about plastic. You know, it obviously gets whatever, but the world now of the microplastic, which it seems to me we're just beginning to get our heads around. 
can you tell us about how does how does it what is microplastic and how does plastic become microplastic? So, um, so microplastics, you know, one's really strict definition. I think the definition that's usually used is a piece that's five millimeters or less in diameter, but um, you know, that's kind of a rough approximation. So just basically very small pieces of plastic and plastic becomes microplastic in a lot of the main way I think is probably just degradation. You know, everything uh, is sloughing off plastic, you know, the way you're sloughing off, you know, skin cells or, or hair all the time. So um, when a piece of plastic um, enters into the garbage, however, either it's, you know, tossed properly or not tossed properly, it starts to degrade. And even maybe some many plastics are degrading that haven't even entered that. Uh, we are all wearing clothes made out of plastic now, and those are shedding fibers all the time. Every time we do the laundry, um, those shed fibers and dispersed into the environment. So um, it's a combination of things breaking down, you know, plastic, that plastic bag that flew off and, you know, got tangled in the trees and eventually ended up in the oceans. It got um, hit by a lot of UV you know, from the sun, that degrades plastic very effectively. And then it got, you know, bounced around by the waves, that degrades plastic. So it's always just degrading. These long polymers that make up plastic just are breaking down into smaller and smaller pieces. So what's that doing both to the ocean with that maybe? And then what's it doing to us? Well, I think that, right, there are these two issues. There's, there's the one issue of what plastic microplastics and macroplastics are doing to aquatic life you know which is is bad everyone has seen you know horrific photos of uh you know turtles with the you know plastic straws stuck up their you know snouts or um animals that are entangled in fishing gear plastic fishing gear um netting or rings um or you know many studies have shown that you know birds aquatic birds feed these bits of plastic to their young they can fill up their gullet bellies and they basically starve to death so those are all um problems that are uh, you know acute for for wildlife um and then for both wildlife and humans there's there's the question of what are these things that we are either ingesting or inhaling, what are they doing? And as you say, that's really a pretty new um, avenue. And I think the bottom line right now would be no one, no one knows exactly what the health implications are. So something I was listening to um, an interview that one of the guys who wrote one of those books did, and he, he said something very interesting about it, that. Nobody puts a table of, you don't have to say what's in it. Even the, the list of the kind of stuff is that is nothing that you, you know, as Michael Pollan would say, that is nothing that your grandmother would recognize. But you never have to say what's in plastic. And in fact, plastic is made up of all sorts of things, but it's principally oil, isn't it? Or it's oil-based. It's these long chains of, of hydrocarbons made 
usually or almost exclusively from these sort of byproducts or sometimes purposeful products of refining fossil fuels, either oil or natural gas. Um, then you take those molecules and you often and add a lot of, as you're saying, a lot of other, what I will use the not technical term, you know, just basically crap. I mean, all sorts of things get added either for water resistance, for color, just many, many additives, so many that, you know, people can't even keep track of them. We're talking about many, many thousands of different chemicals that can be in plastics and many of them can be in the same plastic and they can break down then into new chemicals. So, you know, there are just so many variables here and people are just beginning to do the kind of testing as to what impacts, what potential health impacts they could have. One thing I think that's particularly concerning, um, you know, these forever chemicals, PFAS, as they're sometimes mm -hmm. called, for water resistance that that are now turning up in the states, at least in drinking water supplies, um, no, you know, sort of known or suspected carcinogens. Those can those are in a lot of plastics for water resistance. Are those you know leaking out of plastics once we even before we discard them? And you made the point also that in terms of like babies' bottles, as the milk gets. Well, the formula gets swilled around. It's picking up tiny little bits that you can't see and you can't have any any awareness of. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are recent studies that have found, you know, there's that was a pretty recent study of of formula. What you know, it, in just in the sort of normal course of making formula in a plastic baby bottle, how much plastic. Uh, babies are drinking, but you know there are also now studies that have shown that microplastics are in placentas, human placentas. Um, you know that is that's quite recent research, but we're what you know. So really, what we're finding is now microplastics are everywhere, and they're in kids even before they're born. It's an extraordinary experiment that we're playing on humanity, isn't it? Stuff is going into our into our blood systems, and some of it is known carcinogenic. Have there been any, um, before we get on to how we might or might not recycle it, which certainly from the British end of it is pretty, not such a great story, have there been any proper legislative attempts in the USA to get on top of make plastic manufacturers declare what they're doing? Or is it in fact just that big oil, now seeing the end of the road maybe for their fossil, direct fossil fuels, are putting a lot of their energy into making more and more plastic. I don't know of any very serious efforts to make plastics producers, you know, list every ingredient that's in plastics, which honestly, you know, could be a, a list as long as your arm. Um, in terms of what the oil companies are doing, I think, you know, there's been a lot of chronicling of that, that, are huge complexes all around the world. Plastic demand is is going up. It's not going down. And as I say, that is um, partly a function of increased plastics use in the developing world. Places like India, plastics mm -hmm. use is rising very, very fast. And you know, the oil definitely see plastics manufacturing 
as a way to use these resources that, you know, maybe I will not say, you know, oil demand is dropping, but I hope it will be dropping. It certainly it seems to be plateauing, at least um, as a way to prolong the life of, of, of oil. Um, and there are huge complexes going up in the States, I know, manufacturing, plastics manufacturing complexes. How did, um, just before, sorry, before we get to the recycling, something that really interested me about how much plastics is in your clothes, like in the, I mean, I'm wearing a, quote, cotton jacket, but not that long ago, a few weeks ago, a very close friend of mine was wearing a, what was sold to her as a 100, well, a, a, a cotton shirt, and she passed her arm across a flame, left it on on a stove, and it went on fire. And it went on fire in a really scary way. I mean, it, she was terribly badly burnt and the whole shirt just went up. And it was, it was you know, a pure cotton, sold as a pure cotton shirt. It obviously wasn't. It mm. obviously had some kind of something in it that made it so flammable. Well, I certainly can't, you know, speak to exactly what she no, had been sold. Right. But I, I think there are statistics, you know, certainly over half, the clothes that are marketed made these days contain some synthetic fibers. And that, you know, that means some kind of plastic. Um, you know, this is like a fleecy thing. This is pure, mm -hmm. you know, synthetic fibers. Um, and, you know, the concern about that is that these fibers are, as I said, that they're being shed and, and people talk, you know, especially in the, in the, in the washing process, and also another concern that I'll raise is that people who work in the synthetic fiber industry, it's it's been known for quite a long time that they have very high uh, lung cancer rates. And there's a you know sort of suspicion that drawing these fibers into your lungs is not is the is the reason. We're always, if everything we're wearing is shedding these little mm -hmm. fibers and we're breathing them, um, you could kind of do the math and say that's probably not a good idea. Yeah, it's very scary. So when, when we get to recycling, I mean, here in Britain, we used to have a deal with China that we used to send them our old plan. Not that long ago, they said, hey, we don't we don't want this anymore. So we started sending it to all sorts of strange places. And, and there were terrible uh, stories that, that came back when people investigated what happened. And we found rubbish tips in Turkey and children, like three-year-olds climbing over these mountains of ghastly all the, the logos of Heinz and whatever on it. Um, it's The world is completely, you know, not on top of what to do with this stuff, are they? Yes, you're exactly right. I mean, we, we used to, we in the, you know, developed world uh, used to send vast U.S. and Europe, vast quantities of plastic to China. China in China, it got melted down often under environmentally, you know, disastrous conditions uh, and, and reused. Um, and then the Chinese eventually, you know, had enough of that, developed their own, you know, industries. They didn't need our crap anymore. Um, and so they said they were not going to take it anymore. And that caused a tremendous crisis in, you know, what is called recycling, uh, but, you know, may just have been in many cases, um, 
you know, just shipping it off to China for them to do whatever they wanted to do with it. Um, and as you say, that resulted, that, you know, crisis resulted in, you know, where there's, um, there's, you know, there was money to be made. There was now, there were now the, all this, all this stuff looking for a home and the country has accepted it uh, under very shady circumstances. And, you know, pay, suffered the suffered the consequences. And honestly, where that stands right now, I don't know the answer to that. What we are all doing, um, there was this kind of crisis just a few years ago, um, and I think people are still sort of trying to sort out uh, what to do now. But we all want to believe that whatever plastic we've got, when we stick it in the bin marked recycling, that something brilliant happens but you're you're saying uh, i think that you that you can't endlessly recycle plastic anyway and some plastic you can't recycle right so so there's this you know um general sense which many people have written about that as long as it has a little number in it uh inside those little arrows that it's and the truth turns out to be that very few that that little number refers to you know what kind of plastic resin is used in the plastic and very few kinds of plastics only plastics one and two are recycled with any and all the rest are not and even with plastics one and two people would point out they're not really generally they're not recycled they're downcycled you can't take that plastic um, soda bottle, let's say, and turn it into a new soda bottle. Plastic is very high quality plastic. And once you melt it, and if there's any contamination in it at all, you know, you don't get food quality plastic. It doesn't have that brilliant clarity anymore. Um, so these things have to get downcycled into things like um, fibers for um, you know, you'll sometimes see playground equipment and say this was made with recycled plastics. So you can downcycle plastics, but they're very hard to, to recycle. Um, maybe you could get one more use out of them or, you know, once again, um, but but you can't just not like aluminum or glass where you can melt it down and form the same product again. You quote a, a young woman called Eve Schwab who... Um tries very hard to follow what happens to her old plastic and the results aren't that brilliant. No, I mean, she, this is a woman who tried to, who really, you know, spent a year really trying to cut down her plastic, figure out where her plastic was going. And she follows a variety of different threads and wherever she follows them out, it's it's kind of disappointing. So one example is a is company that you know promises to recycle the unrecyclable you know it's very difficult to recycle and they charge quite a lot of money for you to send you know your old plastic toothbrush and just whatever you know kind of plastic that don't fit into normal categories and they be sort of scandal plagued and have basically um you know not lived up to actually recycling this stuff in one case it's found to be used be being dumped in the burn a burn kiln kiln in bulgaria you know mm -hmm. so it's not uh it's not 
Um, I don't know about your local shops, but I mean, I I know every supermarket or shop I go into, you know, they give you these things now called bags for life, which are people end up with a whole lot of. But you you also say at some point that the to have impact than a plastic bag you know actual fact you've got to use a cotton tote 71 7100 times is that right well that was a figure um the danish government did a survey i think there are many different figures you can come up with that one is you know on the high side but the environmental costs of that you know, cotton tote, that organic cotton tote that you have, um, that you're replacing those single-use plastic bags with, definitely it has to be used many times, uh, tens of times, absolutely, quite possibly hundreds, even maybe thousands. By some metrics, I mean, once again, it depends what metric you're using uh, to make it worth, you know, not taking that plastic bag. And then as you point out, I mean, it's embarrassing to have a pile of bags that I've simply been given, not even purchased, um, that, you know, I would probably take many lifetimes to work off, you know, the the environmental costs of, of having produced those bags. So uh, we've, you know, quite, I don't want to say, exchange one environmental problem for another but but we've possibly you know tipped over on into another set of environmental problems i think that that that's really really fascinating that that feeling that we go from one problem and we try another problem um i'm just going to go on talking with elizabeth for a bit but i can see questions coming in so do start putting them in because we'll start coming to them in about <laughs> 10 minutes but Picking up on what, what you said just then, and very much now, I think, going back to under a white sky, the um, and the fact that it seems that 1.5 limit in the month of September and everything that we hear about on the news now, that this question of how, whether, will we be able to actually extract CO2 to try to reverse the unintended consequences of everything that we have is one. Where do you see that technology sitting at the moment? Well, I mean, it's interesting. There, the, the, there is a parallel. You know, there are people working on these machines to get plastic out of the ocean. You know, can you send these sort of booms around that out of the ocean? And on a, you know, on a small scale, that's probably possible. And that's the same thing I would say of of carbon dioxide removal, which is a big issue now and is going to be an increasingly big issue as we move forward. Um, you know, this notion that not only do we have to stop putting CO2 into the air, to be perfectly honest, we're, we're not stopping that. Um, we continue on our merry way. Um, but we also, also we need to actually take CO2 out of the atmosphere. That's, that's energetically quite demanding. Um, you know, it doesn't nat CO2 isn't naturally coming out of the atmosphere, except into trees. You do hear people talk about, well, we need to plant, you know, trillions of trees. Um, and so, you know, carbon dioxide removal is very difficult. It can be done. It has an energy cost. So then you think, well, how are you getting the energy to do that? And are you adding more CO2 into the atmosphere uh, by doing that? 
it can it's very difficult to do at scale uh virtually impossible to do at scale some people would say you have to you think about how every single bit of our infrastructure right now is involved in adding co2 to the atmosphere so then you think you have to in order to counteract that you'd have to have an just as big taking co2 out of the atmosphere and you'd have to put that co2 somewhere um and that's a very 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 tall order so i think that you know there is probably a role for carbon capture removal um but it is not going to be nearly as big as um big enough to make a dent uh in our co2 emissions so really what we need to be concentrating on is is not putting it up there in the first place and ditto with plastics could remove some of it but really we need to just not put it in the oceans to begin with yes i, I mean i have a friend who is working on trying to take carbon out of the atmosphere and in a brilliant bit of irony put it back into the cavities and under the north sea where the north sea is, and it, it's just such a strange thought but she's convinced a that that can work and b that we won't solve this problem unless we think about new technologies because that is the kind of impulse of humankind and that to to say or stop is actually never going to happen so therefore we've got to try and come up with yes another i mean it's a bit like you know what happened with new orleans in your book that you keep having to add something you keep having to do something but that in the end of the day that's the way that the human race operates is about going forward rather than going backward i i just wanted to know what you thought about that well that you know that's completely the subject of under a white sky that human impulse and the question of whether that human impulse you know it's certainly taken us a long way it's it's taken us to today um there are 8 billion of us on the planet so on some it's it's worked out pretty well for us um you know that being said there're no you know there're no guarantees here i think that um you know you start you know i'm not a material scientist but you do start to bump up against the limits of physics and chemistry and you know one of the problems that we have is that fossil fuels are very they carry a lot of energy and then they release a lot of co2 when you burn them you get the energy and you you have the co2 and then the byproduct is the co2 if you want to reverse that process you need to use energy and that's where you know you start bumping up against against the laws of physics it's doable um but in i you know and maybe people will come up with some brilliant way to overcome you know what seem to be these absolute barriers of physics and chemistry but so far they have not what do you feel about um as the title of your book under a white sky you know that the shooting of either diamonds or sulfur or whatever it would be uh, to try to block the sun <laughs> is it crazy well you know it's um i mean that's sort of the ultimate question that's the ultimate question is it is it crazy or is it you know our last hope and i don't have um i don't have the answer for that. 
Um, we are, I think this last year brought home for people in a way that maybe they hadn't felt before how dangerous these changes are, mm. how dangerous climate change is. And we are just seeing the beginning now. It's not, go, you know, not getting cooler. It's only getting hotter. And so the question of, you know, what whether we're going to have to look seriously at other forms of, you know, tampering with the atmosphere, that what you're alluding to is this idea that we would, you know, literally some sunlight from hitting the earth by spraying some kind of reflective material in the stratosphere. Um, you know, it's either, uh, it's been described, you know, as unimaginably drastic, uh, you know, a highway to hell, I mean, it's also been described. We'll do that because, as as you're saying, well, we don't, we're not very good at at going back or reining ourselves in, but we're very good at reaching for the next technological fix. So I, you know, I don't know. Um, it's not a hundred percent clear at this point that it's even feasible. One thing I would would say this evening is that you know you're going to hear more and more about it. It's not it's not going away. This idea. I think that that's true. I think that that things become increasingly, um, as you say, this last year has been absolutely astonishing. I mean, we've had floods here in the UK that have now, I think, tonight, um, just suddenly, kind of out of the blue, places that never usually flood. Really drastic stuff, people being stuck in their cars. And you, you just, and at the same time, we have a government that is saying that uh, we roll back the EVs, we'll give out licenses in the North Sea. There's a kind of extraordinary disconnect between where the politics are pretty much worldwide and where the reality is outside your door or indeed inside your door, uh, if you're in somewhere that's just getting hotter and hotter. Um, and it, it's very hard to understand how we're going to bring that together. Let's say, you know, we, we make people pay 10p for a plastic bag, but it hasn't made any difference or a dent into the acres of plastic that are in the world. As you say, the, the manufacturer continues to go up. You know, it's very difficult when you have these, you, you know, you could, you could argue really, we're just in uncharted territory. You know, we, until pretty recently, we weren't capable of creating global environmental problems. We were, you know, capable of, causing local and even maybe regional environmental problems. We, we just really weren't capable of environmental problems. And now we are. And you can only solve a global environmental problem, you know, globally. And our institutions um, clearly do not seem up to that. And uh, so it's everything is very much an open question of, of what happens next. And I, I think people are um understandably very pessimistic i myself am very pessimistic about the ability of our institutions uh to grapple with these unprecedented problems yeah well on that rather pessimistic questions from the audience um uh imam honey asks um says thank you uh what about the newly discovered bacterium Rhodococci that digests plastic, which is found in soil and aquatic environments? That's really interesting because the world is waking up to the wonders of fungi and such. 
Yeah, I think there is interesting research. I mean, you know, there are these um, plastics are made out of, you know, what were organic material, right? I mean, oil was, you know, vegetation from, you know, many, many, many millions of years ago that cooked in just the right way and stays, remained under some kind of cap, stone, rock, you know, barrier for, for millions of years. And there are, you know, oil eating bacteria. When, but I think that once again, um, it's the scale daunting. And it's also the case that, you know, uh, this bacteria might be able to eat, you know, one sort of plastic. But as we discussed, we are making a gazillion types of plastics and we're adding all this uh, we're adding to it some chemicals that are absolutely you know not found in in nature um so to be able you know to imagine that we're going to come up with some kind of natural way to degrade plastic i think is probably not terribly realistic though you know people are certainly working on things genetically tweak certain bacteria, bacteria, there are all sorts of possibilities. But one of the problems that we have also is, is this stuff is just so dispersed, you know, how are you going to um, get, get this stuff where it needs to go, if that makes sense? Absolutely does. And and I, it's interesting when you say that about, you know, a, nat a natural thing is not necessarily going to be able to come against some of these weird chemicals because I was in India not that long ago and outside every sort of village there are these huge piles of plastic and of waste which there's no for it to go and realize that we are told that all the uh, vultures have gone too because they have ingested particular disulfram apparently is the one and it knocks their kidneys out and so even in places like the Towers of Silence in Mumbai they now have to dispose of the bodies by using solar panels because and so there's no vultures left to eat the waste and there's no disposal systems and it, it is like a, an amazing kind of knockoff <laughs> um the and the, now another question which is this uh i.e the microplastics i assume person means connected to the dropping off human fertility over the last 50 years that's a really good question yeah, that is a really good question. And I'm afraid I, I can't answer it. And I don't think anyone can answer it. I mean, these questions of whether, you know, there are these, you know, hormone disrupting chemicals that we, that didn't exist and that people are very concerned are in, you know, water supplies, for example, and our plastics also plastics, microplastics have a way of sort of attracting um, poisons. So that's another, you know, fear that as we ingest these things, they they actually are sort of like certain classes of other chemicals, like PCBs, for example. And are we, um, you know, ingesting hormone disrupting chemicals with our plastics? Are plastics themselves microplastics themselves hormone disrupting? These are all questions that I think um, no one has an certainly. Um, people are looking at and um, certainly deserve to be looked at. Do you think that the plastics in, plastic industry itself has a clue of what's happening? I mean, I, I suppose you think of the fact that ExxonMobil and companies like that had all the facts and data at their fingertips about what 
if they carried on pushing that much CO2 into the atmosphere from as far back as 1970? Well, that, I mean, I do, I do want to separate, I do want to say that, um, you know, plastics and climate change, that that is an issue. That plastics are not driving our climate change, you know, crisis. Mm-hmm. Climate change is being driven mainly by the fact that we, you know, combust fossil fuels and um plastics in a way are taking fossil fuels and you know putting them into something else that eventually breaks down but necessarily not necessarily in a way that contributes to climate change um so yeah those are those are i I just should say that those are somewhat um you know separate ills uh, uh from plastics now in terms of you know what the oil companies you know they they hide behind the consumer you know the big um consumers of plastics buyers of plastics are companies like coke coca-cola pepsi nestle those are huge purveyors of plastics and they occasionally um put out these you know plans sure that every bottle they sell gets recycled you know everyone knows those are nonsense that that's not happening um, and then, you know, if you ever follow up on any of these pledges, you find that they did not actually live up to any of them. But we so want to believe. Um, Jessica Bolt, the clean way to burn plastic for disposal and use the energy that you create. And does fossil fuel based fertilizer, that's a really interesting idea, shed plastic into the environment? So, in terms of burning plastic, a certain amount of plastics, plastic will get absolutely, you know, in waste energy plants. And it's, you know, probably pretty energy dense. I think one of the problems is that, as I said, there are many, many chemicals in plastics so that you can get some pretty nasty things uh, when you burn it, you know, dioxins. So I not sure if there's any very good way to burn burn plastics but a lot of it is getting burned um but and there may be there probably are better and worse ways to burn it honestly so that that is an interesting question i don't want to claim to have the answer to that um as for fertilizer so fertilizer what happens the reason fertilizer is um uses fossil fuels is because we get the hydrogen. It's, it's a complicated process. Um, but basically, we use natural gas. We, we It's called... Um, and that's why, that's how we use natural gas to make nitrogen fertilizer. And that is um, pretty unrelated to the whole plastics issue. That's a whole other form <laughs> of the way that we are dependent on fossil fuels. Um, but I don't think in in any clear, straightforward way with plastics. Um, thank you. Anita Macri asks, what, what do you think are the more promising initiatives to deal with the problem at this point? Can we expect moves for a secular economy to make a difference, for example, or the UN's push for some kind of legally binding to reduce plastic pollution? Well, that's that's a really good question. There are, um, as as the questioner points out, uh, you know, negotiations going on, not exactly as we speak, but there have been s- several negotiating sessions for this global treaty to reduce plastic pollution. 
you know, there's a global treaty to reduce CO2 pollution. We all know how effective that's been. So I think there's definitely growing awareness that this is a really big environmental problem. Um, whether a global treaty is going to make a dent in it, I don't One idea that is, you know, pretty interesting and worthy of attention is if the producer, you know, had to take it back, you know, if there were some responsibility on companies that sell packaged goods, to, uh, how that packaging could be recycled or, you know, combusted or whatever it is, um, then you would get a different um, way of thinking about the problem. And I think one problem that we have is that these there are often many plastics combined in packaging so they simply cannot be you know disentangled and that mm. makes reuse or recycling you know virtually impossible so if there were some kind of producer responsibility then at least maybe the producers would think of creating most uh the you know if they had to take things back they would have to think about what they were doing in ways that they don't have to now. I think that's a really, really good point. And the whole thing about extended producer responsibility is one of the, I think, one of the keys to this. But we have difficulty even trying to get a, a refund scheme on bottles, you know, so that you'd get, I mean, when we were kids, you used to be able to take bottles back to the local shop and you'd get a few pennies. And it was quite a good trade, really. And it, yeah. made, you it made you respect the thing that it had a kind of intrinsic value, even though you'd... And we have lost that capability, I think, of, of the way we look at that. But I think it's... Uh, I mean, the European Union is doing a lot on extended producer responsibility about things in terms of disposal and also in terms of things that, to try to get you out of the um, buy-a-new-one culture that's cheaper than fixing it, whether it's your toaster or your kettle or whatever, you just bung it out. Um, Mar Mariam Matthew asked a very interesting question, which is slightly different, but I'm totally interested in what you think about this, about is basically what can we wear? Because as she says, leather and fur and cotton is one of the greediest water-wise and indeed in terms of, I think, pesticide use. And so what is... Is there a synthetic that, that's a good thing? Or what should we do apart from buy clothes from charity shops and buy second-hand? Is, is there... Certainly the, the sustainable... The, quote, sustainable clothing lines that we have in the UK are really expensive. They're kind well, of elite. I think, yeah, I think what we're learning, you know, um, after having, you know, tried everything else is that, you know, there's very, there's nothing that you could do at scale, once again, you know, if you think about clothing, you know, 8 billion people, that is, you know, really, um, that doesn't have an environmental impact. How's that? Yes, either growing the cotton or, you know, making the synthetic fiber, whatever you, you know, wool obviously has a big environmental impact, sheep, um, leather, whatever you do, you're going to, is going to have an environmental impact when multiplied by 8 billion people. And I think that, you know, the first step here, and it's the easy one, 
fruit, as it were, is, you know, we all have um, way more clothes than we wear, right? I mean, so, you know, that in the sort of um, global north, and when you think about, you know, not to depress everyone further, but in this moment of time where we should be, you know, producing less, we are actually, we actually have, have, you know, now it's called fast fashion. You know, nothing could be kind of crazier than that, than having clothes that are literally designed to be worn a few times, tossed, you know, so we really, I in in that world, in the clothing world, there, the first and second and third step is to just, you know, buy a lot less. Um, and then in terms of, you know, what would act to act, what is the best kind of garment to buy, you know, the, the first is none. And the second answer to that is, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure whether, which pair of shoes, the synthetic ones, the leather ones, probably the synthetic ones on many grounds have a lower environmental footprint, but maybe when it comes to disposal, they have a higher environmental footprint. These life cycle analyses are are complicated and it depends on what variables, you know, you're focusing on often. God, it's complicated. Um, Jeff Wint from OceanWise says, it sounds like the plastic pollution crisis is the systemic challenge that the industry needs to take a lead. I and he says, what role does the individual need to play to move the system to a lower plastic future? Well, I th- I do think that, you know, because a lot of plastic, not all certainly, but a lot of plastic is in very consumer-facing products, um, that yeah. public pressure is, um, you know, important uh, because these companies are very concerned about what consumers think. So if they thought that, you know, consumers, you know, once again, there is a fair amount of low hanging fruit. This is, doesn't solve the problem, but a very important first step, you know, our packaging, a lot of our packaging is ridiculous. Um, Things are, you know, completely over packaged. Everyone knows that who, you know, buys, buys anything that you can barely get it out of a package often. So I think that, you know, if if companies felt like um, people were paying attention, and that would mean you know letter campaigns or or public pressure campaigns, um, they would change uh, the way they do business when it comes to directly interfacing with. Yeah, I agree about that. Um, we're right up to time now, and. Um... So I'd like to end on a question from Lucy Carrigan, who says, Rebecca Solnit says it's not too late. Do you agree? <laughs> I guess the question is, too late for what? Um, it's not too late to uh, make a big difference. Um, is it too late to, you know, keep temperatures from rising, you know, more than 1.5 degrees C over pre-industrial times? You know, probably. Is that going to have cascading impact? Will not be able to control, quite possibly. Um, but, you know, one of the point, one of the, um, you know, facts about our situation is that we kind of have to act uh, mm. in the hope that it's not too late, even though 
for many creatures and ecosystems, um, you know, it may be. Well, thank you. <laughs> Um, Elizabeth, thank you so much for giving us your time tonight. That's so many thoughtful and interesting things. And as I say, the details of Elizabeth's books are in the chat. One wants this, a recommendation of a film uh, in the Q&A as well. Um, that, was, that, was just, that was just brilliant. There's so much to think about. And it's like with so many of these issues, you start with one, not small thing, but one thing like plastic, and you find that it sort of takes up the entire problem could be seen through of that and sometimes you can see some solutions um i hope there are and then please keep writing because you're really inspirational to everybody and so thank you all very very much for joining us and thank you all for your questions and i'm sorry i didn't get to them all but come back soon and good night thanks